are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7000. You're on the line with Lance Daw, Jacob Hillman, and Dylan Lark on ESPN 1067 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Friday, everybody. It's gotten a little hot over the past few days. It's incredibly hot outside, just trying to make it through the rest of the summer, getting closer and closer to college football season. Jacob, how you doing today, my man? Well, as you mentioned, like you said, it's getting hot. It was a mild summer up until about last week, and now it's like 105 degrees out there. Yeah, it has definitely ramped up over the past few days for sure. But Dylan, that's Alabama for you. Doing so. all right. My last day in the studio for the for the year. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Wrapping up his last day in the studio, guys. If you're an Auburn fan out there, you might have been a little disgruntled watching the NBA draft last night. JT Thor and Sharif Cooper did eventually get picked. They fell out of the first round. JT Thor was the first guy to go. I believe it was 37th overall to the Charlotte Hornets. Sharif Cooper, 48th overall to Jacob Hillman's Atlanta Hawks. I want to talk about JT Thor first for a little bit. A guy that was coming out of high school, incredibly young, came to the college basketball scene, should have been a senior in high school, played at Auburn, was showed was incredibly raw, but showed a lot of talent and promise. Uh, eventually goes uh, to the Combine, has a really good showing there. Draft stocks seem to rise maybe into the late first round. Of course, that did not happen. He was picked uh, in, in the second round to the Hornets. But my question to you guys is, did, did JT Thor actually go too low, or is this where we should have expected him to fall this entire time? This is probably exactly where he should have fallen. I know we had the hype built up around his wingspan and his Combine, but this is probably about where he was going to fall the whole time. When he when he first came out, it was, the thought was second round and maybe early second round, and that's exactly where he landed. So I think it's a good spot for him as well. Charlotte Hornets with LaMelo Ball and, and, and Miles Bridges, Mason Plumlee, they, they've got a good core there in Charlotte, but I think this landing spot is about right for him. And when we get to Sharif Cooper, we'll talk about how probably isn't where we expected him to land yeah dylan too high too low just about right i think it's just right when you think of like a a raw athlete like he is this is about where you want to see it a raw athlete probably shouldn't be like higher in like upper first round i think early second is right where he wants to be yeah i agree with you i think all this entire time you know it's it's an 18 year old kid and like you said i think you said it perfectly such a raw underdeveloped prospect like jt thor he's obviously got the tools didn't show didn't show everything in his first season at auburn i think mid early second round was perfect for him i think after the combine you know obviously getting bumped up into that late late first round along with shreve cooper i thought that was a little much i thought that maybe was a little too high i was honestly before the combine and before all these different mock drafts i actually said on the show i didn't know if he was going to get drafted after he left auburn 
Uh, and I'm just inc- incredibly excited for the kid. Like you said, I think he goes really well with the Hornets with the LaMelo Ball. I think he's going to be able to show in the NBA uh, something that we talked a little bit about on yesterday's show, that three-point shooting stroke. He's got fantastic form for a kid that's 6'8", 6'9". Uh, I, think, I think he went perfectly there. But let's talk about Sharif Cooper for a second. Did he go too low, Jacob? How excited are you, by the way, for him to be on the Hawks? Well, perfect. He went perfect for me. I, I'm excited to have him on the Atlanta Hawks. But, yes, he... He went much lower than everyone expected. If you had told me that JT Thor would go above Sharif Cooper, I would have guessed that JT Thor got promised a lottery spot and Sharif Cooper was picked around 20th. But that's not what happened. Sharif Cooper was drafted number 48 by the Atlanta Hawks. He's going to play behind Trey Young. And, you know, I think that's a good spot. He's at home and he is learning from one of the best in the game. Do, I mean, Sharif Cooper could end up getting traded by the Hawks because Trey Young's going to be in Atlanta for a long time. He's established that. And I don't think Trey Young is going to be a career backup. I know I know mm-hmm. that I think Jay Billis mentioned that him being a good backup. I think that he has the ability to be a starter in the NBA whenever he learns to play against guys much bigger than him. So I think 48 is a little bit low for for his upside. But, you know, I'm happy that he's on the Atlanta Hawks. Dylan? He dropped way too low. Because watching the draft, I was starting to get a little bored because, you know, you start seeing all these players that they talk about like Sharif Cooper, like you, like a Cam Thomas went over him. But they talk about, oh, yeah, here's a point guard that goes like 10 spots above Sharif who does exactly what Sharif does. I, I, I have to question if there's any outside factors to why he dropped so low. Maybe it's size, maybe what happened while he was at Auburn, why he only played for 12 games. It's the question for me. I think there are, are, there are a lot of external factors that went into – Uh, Sharif Cooper dropping so low I think one of them was the fact that he was only able to play 12 games at Auburn it was something that I said whenever he was leaving the program whenever he announced that he was going to the NBA draft I said that I thought he didn't have enough time to show what he was really capable of at Auburn I thought he should have maybe uh, come back for another season simply to see if he could develop his three-point shot a little bit better but now obviously going to the NBA we're going to see if the uh, the the Atlanta Hawks can help him with that and I think that was that was also another concern was that three-point shooting you know he he had a strong display at the combine he managed to quiet some of his critics but he's got to be able to get that clip up from 22 and a half percent your point guard should not be shooting 22 and a half percent from three if he can get it up to like 35 percent I think he's going to be fantastic. For for his first year in the NBA, though, I think he is going to be a really nice backup to Trey Young. They, I, they have very, very similar games. Both guards are fantastic finishers at the rim. Both of them understand how to draw contact. Both of them understand how to get to the free throw line. Their ball handling and their court vision are both exceptional. Again, the only downside to Cooper's game, though, is that he can't shoot. He, he hasn't formed that outside shot yet. Uh, so he also might struggle defensively defensively because his size. You mentioned that, Jacob. He's going to need to add some range to his offensive game if he wants to try to either steal some minutes from Trey Young or if he wants to become that starting point guard in the NBA, uh, probably on another team if they decide to trade him down the line. Um, so I think I think he did go just a little too low. I would have been I would have been accepting of it had he gone late first round. That's kind of where I thought in my mind that he would go. Um, honestly, I, and I, I don't know if I've said this on the show before, I don't know if I've been this harsh, but I never thought that he was a lottery pick simply because of his shooting. Also does not seem to have the clutch gene. Of course, 12 games isn't enough sample size to really tell whether or not he does, but in the moments that he got, uh, he was not able to execute as well. But I think he did go a little too low, and you know what? That's okay. Auburn, Auburn uh, 
I think the three drafts that they've been in, they've had every single every single draft, whether it be the MLB, the NBA, or the NFL, they've had players go lower than we thought they mm-hmm. would. And so we're going to get to that later on in the show. We're going to talk to Brad Law of the Auburn Sports Network and get his thoughts on that and whether or not it should be a concern for Auburn fans down the line. But yeah, I think Thor went. I think Thor went right where he should have gone, and I think Sharif Cooper went a little too low. Something that I want to get to, we talked about the week one matchups in college football on yesterday's show about how exciting some games are. We talked our top five matchups, and then we just kind of went down a rabbit hole of you know how awesome week one is and how there are just a bunch of fantastic different games across the schedule. But today, I want to talk about potentially the most likely upset of week one in college football and y'all y'all have a, a lot of different picks I've got a couple of different picks as well so let's go ahead and dive into it Jacob what is your most likely upset if you had to choose one I know we've got a few but yeah. what would you say is your more, most likely I'm gonna go with Louisiana over Texas and I know this is a this is a hot topic because of Texas joining the SEC it wouldn't be a good look for them to lose in week one to a Sunbelt team but Louisiana's made a habit of doing this where they beat a big 12 team early in the season and this is a Louisiana team that returns 10 starters on offense 10 starters on defense including their quarterback Levi Lewis who he he showed a lot of promise last year early in the season and and there's a lot of faith in Billy Napier there he stayed at Louisiana after getting a lot of look in the offseason during the coaching carousel so I really like what Louisiana brings to the table next year I could see them competing for the Sun Belt and I don't think Texas is going to be a super uh, super bad next year I think Steve Sharkeesian's gonna get the thing rolling and he's gonna be ready to play in the SEC whenever that does happen by 2025 I think sooner than that probably 2022 but I just think week one Texas new coach and Louisiana returning almost everybody give me the raging Cajuns yeah like you mentioned they're 10 starters on both offense and defense a team that went 10 and 1 last season uh returning for the raging Cajuns ESPN's FPI gives Texas an 89 percent chance to win this game normally it's closer to around 95 percent right. against just a normal group of five team but as you mentioned Jacob this is not just some normal group of five st- team Steve Sarkeesian I agree with you I don't think he's going to be terrible in his uh his first season with the Longhorns but you know he's got some pieces coming back it's just the question of whether or not uh, he'll be able to kind of shake off that Texas fatigue. You know, they've had all the talent in the world over the last few seasons. They just not had a coach that was able to guide them uh, past Oklahoma in the Big 12. Uh, Jacob, what would you say is your most likely upset in Week One? Uh, Dylan. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, nar- I, I narrowed it down to two. So my, um, I'm going to eventually go with UCLA, LSU. But I want to talk about my other one, Louisville, Ole Miss, which is going to be a huge shootout in Week One. The two offenses, very bad defenses going against each other. First one to hit 50 wins. But I'm going to go with UCLA over LSU. I think Dorian Thompson is better than both quarterbacks for LSU. Uh, uh, UCLA brings back 10 starters on both sides of the ball. They're going to already have a week, a week zero matchup against Hawaii. So we're going to know what we're going to get out of UCLA. We don't know what we're going to see out of this LSU team that was very lackluster last year. So I think... At the Rose Bowl, I think UCLA is going to take down LSU. I like that. I like that. Something that I, a word that I have used about LSU's defense 
uh, is porous. There were a lot of holes in that defense last season. They gave up a lot of big plays. It was a question actually that I I posed to Ed Ogeron. I was like, you know, you bring in a new quarter, coordinator in Durante Jones. What are y'all going to do schematically to uh, to improve on last year's totals? And he said, well, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to have to stop explosive plays. We're going to run a lot of man or run a lot of zone compared to what we did last year, which is run a lot of man. But I don't know if they're going to be able to stop a UCLA offense that was averaging about 34 points a game last season and they bring back just about everybody and like you mentioned Dorian Thompson Robinson DTR out of UCLA running that Chip Kelly system I think it's going to give LSU fits especially having to travel across the country on the road in the Rose Bowl I really like that pick ESPN's FPI gives LSU a 65% chance to win this game Uh, UCLA a 34.7% chance to win this game I really like that pick Um, yeah I agree with you right now if I had to choose I'm probably taking the Bruins uh, I want to go ahead and give mine, and uh, this is kind of uh, kind of going off of my uh, my I hate Notre Dame trend that I've been going <laughs> going over the past uh, two or three months. I'm picking Florida State over Notre Dame as the most likely upset of Week One. ESPN's FPI gives Notre Dame a 71% chance to beat the Seminoles on the road. It's on a Sunday, 6:30 at night on ABC. And the only reason I think the Seminoles are going to get it done is I think they have much better quarterback play than the Fighting Irish do. I don't think Jack Cohn is the answer for Notre Dame. I think Mackenzie Milton is the answer for Florida State. I think this Florida State roster still has a lot of talent. They still recruit really well. And Notre Dame is going to be, I would say, somewhere around the top 15 to open the season. And I think it's truly going to be an upset. I think it's going to shock some people. We talked about, you know, betting the lines just a couple of, uh, it might have been a week or so ago. And we, uh, we, we talked about the fact that Notre Dame is favored by nine and a half right now in this game uh, weeks before the season starts. And I think that's just a little too much. I think that's a little too much. I would probably take the Seminoles to cover. I think Florida State could potentially win this game outright. And again, it comes down to quarterback play for me. I mean, yeah, for sure. Especially Notre Dame coming off a year where they were so highly touted. They made it to the college football playoff, but then obviously didn't do much as they usually do in the college football playoff. And Florida State, I feel like that it's it's about time for them to figure something out and do something good because they haven't done that in the last several years. So I think that's a good pick. I doubt, I'm not sure I'm going to go as far as to pick Florida State to win, but that nine and a half point line is a little too large for me. It is. It is just a little too large. Of course, you look at the numbers that Florida State put up last year, though. Only 25.8 points per game, 36 points a game allowed. It, it, a really bad defense last season. They bring back five starters from that unit, but I don't necessarily see Notre Dame scoring 35 or 40 points on Florida State, Probably especially not. on the road. You think about the environment. You know, it's after COVID, people are going to be so excited to actually get back into stadiums and actually cheer for their teams. It's going to be incredibly hostile for a Notre Dame quarterback and Jack Cones that's that's still trying to learn a new system trying to break it in with some of these new players that he's getting to play with so uh, I I think that that's my most likely upset for week one I I know that there's a few more that you guys have Jacob did you have any others that you wanted to talk about yeah I was looking at Boise State UCF on I believe Thursday night okay and yeah it's on Thursday night at six o'clock on ESPN UCF's favored by four it's at UCF but I don't know I I just feel like they might come out a little sluggish I I think UCF's gonna be fine this year I expect them to go 10 and 2 but if we're looking at most likely upsets I've Boise State they've been in this position before now of course they don't have Brian Hartz anymore as he's here at Auburn but these players they know what it's like to be in this position to go to a hostile environment and the program knows what it's like too so I don't know I think 
I think that Boise State might be a good team next year, and they could get it done in week one against UCF on that Thursday night. You think that UCF defense holds them back at all? Yeah, I think they do, and I think that's why Boise State will have a chance in that game. 33.2 points per game allowed by UCF last season. 491 total yards per game. That was 123rd nationally out of 127 FBS teams. ESPN's FPI gives UCF an 82% chance to win that game. I honestly would probably bump it down uh, yeah, 70, just a little bit. Yeah, probably. I think I think that's fair. Um, a Brian Harsonless Boise State is still Boise State. They're still one of the better group of five uh, teams out there. We'll see if their new coach can get them going. Dylan, was there any other teams that you had? Uh, I had one. I've had a few, but one that I I look at as a potential upset is uh, UNC versus Virginia Tech. I like that first first game back at 100 percent capacity, late night game or six o'clock, Inner Sandman. That environment is going to be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I could see Sam Howell maybe making a few too many mistakes that he doesn't usually do, and I can see Virginia Tech winning that game close and kind of just ruining UNC's season. See, I think it's going to go two ways, that game. Either you're going to have an awesome game that Virginia Tech pulls out at the end, or Sam Powell's going to have five touchdowns at halftime, and you're not going to be watching it anymore. <laughs> so they, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I, I'm i very much looking forward to the full crowds and inner Sandman again. Always exciting whenever you get an interconference uh, rivalry uh, when a week one ESPN's FPI only gives North Carolina a 55% chance to win this game kind of tells you where where things are right now I agree with you I think that vi- environment's going to be hostile I think that's something that not enough people are talking about is after COVID these kids that have been in the system for maybe a year or two not getting to really experience uh, crowds last season I think that's really going to be a factor in some of these non-conference games whenever you see a team like LSU going across the country whenever you see a team like Notre Dame traveling to Florida State, North Carolina going to Virginia Tech. I I think that's definitely going to be a huge factor. Let's take a quick break. And on the other side of it, we're going to continue our preseason depth chart analysis. We're going to talk wide receivers on the other side of this break. Masks aren't the only way to help reduce the transmission of COVID-19. Wash your hands often to minimize the spread of many types of germs and diseases. Apply soap and scrub for about the time it takes to sing ESPN 1067 is my favorite radio station six times. Dry with a paper towel, then use it to turn off the faucet and open the door. If soap and water aren't available, then use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. For more helpful advice, ask your mother and stay well. A healthy tip from Auburn Network. Tzatziki's has your sports night covered. Enjoy the game from the comfort of home because Tzatziki's offers third-party delivery and online ordering for curbside or in-store pickup. Tasty lamb gyros, beef tenderloin, chicken, salmon, Greek salad. Treat yourself like an athlete. Give your body the good stuff. Great food is waiting to be prepared for you at Tzatziki's in Auburn, Opelika, and by the shops at East Chase in Montgomery. Live the good life. Tzatziki's.com. Hey sports fans, this is Jeff Meyer, Senior Pastor, First Baptist Church of Opelika. And as of the recording of this segment, whom we know as the United States Men's Olympic Basketball Team has done that which hadn't been ever done in history before. That's right, they have lost three out of four games. When we look at the record as of late, it is not pretty. How is it that what we believe to be the greatest ball players in all of the world are losing to teams that honestly the point spread was so big nobody even laid anything on the game. Well, my answer to you is this. It is hard to win a game when you're not hungry, when you don't desire it, when you just expect it to be given to you. How does that relate to our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
In Matthew chapter five, it said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let me encourage you today not to sit back on your laurels, but hunger for the things of God, hunger for the word of God, and hunger to be in a close relationship with him. Y'all have a great day. Love to see you down at First Baptist, Oklahoma. We teased it before going to break. We're going to break down Auburn's depth chart, their wide receivers, continuing our preseason depth chart analysis series. We did this in the, in the spring. We broke down uh, some different position groups. We kind of projected where guys would be after the spring, and then we said we would come back to it uh, in the fall, and we would continue to break down uh, where guys would be after we got to find out a little bit of them after summer and heading into fall camp. Let's go ahead and get it started. Let's work our way from the top and let's work our way down. I've got five receivers listed. Of course, y'all may have a couple different more, and that's fine. I want to start with the top. Obviously, I, I, I think this is going to be Auburn's clear-cut number one heading into that week one game against Akron. I think it's going to be Demetrius Robertson. The transfer from Georgia, he's been used all over the place throughout his collegiate career. He's versatile. He's fast. He's going to bolster this receiving core that lacks depth and experience. You look at his numbers last season, only 110 yards with Georgia a season high, uh, 45 yards receiving against Mississippi State, was a freshman All-American at Cal. He's been all over the place. He's had injuries, former five-star, number one overall receiver in the country. Now that he's healthy, I think Auburn's going to be able to use him in a lot of different ways, and I think that's going to give defenses problems, especially in the first month of the season. It feels like he's the guy you can shoe in as a starter for the receiver core. He's got the speed, he's got the experience, and he's a guy you can rely on because, like you said, he's he's played everywhere in every he's played everywhere literally in the country, and he's played about every position, slot so outside. He's he's done everything. He knows what he's doing, and. I think the only thing that's going to matter when he comes in is how he adjusts to the new system. And, of course, that's going to be a thing for everyone that's on this Auburn football team. So I'm looking forward to see what he what he does in the early in the season because, like you said, who, who knows how teams are going to handle him. Jacob? Or, I'm sorry, Dylan. Man, dadgum, <laughs> man, I'm two for two right now. Dylan, who do you have as your number one receiver? I, I think it's – I think everyone's going to have D-Rob. It's yeah, not every day you get a Georgia Georgia – former Georgia player on your team, and Auburn's had a pretty good track record with that with Nick Marshall and Trey Matthews. Oh, with Katie Johnson in basketball as well. Don't forget. (laughs) Well, we haven't seen him yet, but we're going to see D-Rob before we see KD. That is true. I think something that really, really uh, was was good to hear is that SEC Media Days, when Daniels and Kirby Smart were asked about Demetrius Robertson, they had nothing but good things to say about him and his talent and his personality, how good of a kid he was, uh, how versatile he was, how fast he was. It's something that actually, whenever he first committed, I didn't realize that he was a speedster. I didn't realize he ran a 4.33 uh, 40-yard dash. I didn't realize he was he was that fast. And he's not, he doesn't have like incredible size. He's only sitting at what, six feet tall, 190 pounds. He's not short, but he's not like a big stocky receiver. He's not going to go out there, at least I don't think, and go win those one-on-one balls consistently. I think he's a deep threat. I think he's a slot guy. Again, very versatile. Auburn could use him all over the place, and Georgia's Georgia's, uh, coaching staff uh, spoke highly of him during SEC media days. At number two, I have Elijah Canyon. Every catch that Canyon had 
uh, last season came in the game against Northwestern. Three catches, 80 yards, and a touchdown. Had that 57-yard touchdown where he broke away from that Northwestern defensive back. Kind of stiff-armed him a little bit and just kind of kind of walked into the end zone. I think Canyon's going to have a breakout season this year. He's tall. He's physical. He provides Auburn with a solid one-on-one guy on the outside, unlike Robertson, I think. Canyon listed at 6'4", 215 pounds. I don't think he necessarily has blazing speed, but I think he's going to... I don't think he's going to play. I don't think he's going to play like Seth Williams. Let me say, I don't think he's going to play like Seth Williams. But his body and the way that Auburn utilizes him, I think, is going to be similar to what Seth Williams did last season. Yeah, and my number two is Xavion Capers. I pretty much just had them switched. I have, I have Canyon as my number three, but I think Capers is a little bit quicker than him. Mm-hmm. Just he's 195 pounds, 20 pounds lighter. So. I, I like what he did that LSU game. He had that nice route that he caught for a touchdown. But after that, he kind of disappeared until the Northwestern game. But he only had one catch for four yards in that game. So I'll be interested to see how they really incorporate because we're not talking about tight ends today. But tight ends we know are going to be touching the ball this season. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how much the receivers are impacted by that. And I think it might be for the better. I think that they'll have more openings. It won't be just the the simple routes that were a part of the Gus Malzahn offense. In terms of pass catchers, if that, if that if that's what we were going down today, this look this list would look very different. Correct. For me. Same here. I think there are a couple of tight ends that are going to be involved in this passing offense that will get those receiving yards. Dylan, who did you have as your number two guy? Did you have Canyon? Did you have Capers? I went, I went with you. I have Ka- Canyon. Every time I've seen Canyon touch the ball, I've just I've been just in awe of what he can do. He's, I would love to see him in that number two wide receiver spot. I think he's going to have a great year. I want to see Nick's improve on his downfield accuracy simply to see him throw deep balls to Elijah Canyon. I want to see him go up and get those passes. At number three, I actually have uh, Sevion Capers. Sevion Capers had small had small moments early on in the season. He had that touchdown catch against LSU. I believe he had a season high in terms of receiving yards. Yeah, against South South Carolina, Carolina. he had three catches, 40 yards, uh, a long of 19 there. But as the season went on, his playing time kind of dwindled even into the bowl game. But that was a different coaching staff. I think we're seeing a different scheme this season, and I think he's going to be used more often. I think he's a guy that Auburn's definitely going to look for uh, more often this season. Another guy that's got, that's got a nice build. He can definitely make it in the SEC. 6'4", 195. Uh, I think he's going to be not necessarily a breakout star, but I think he is going to get 300, 400 yards receiving potentially as that third option. Uh, I think he's going to. I think he's going to impact the offense quite a bit this year. Yeah, and my number three, like I said, we just had it switch. I've got Elijah Canyon, and it's pretty much for what Dylan said. He's very electric when he touches the ball. Like he said, in that Northwestern game, he seemed unstoppable, but we didn't see that throughout the season. So that's why I've gone with the number three spot because I'm not so sure if that was you know just a one-shot wonder kind of deal or if he's going to continue that. And I I imagine he will because he's just going to get more playing time. And like we said, the new system, that changes everything. Number three, Dylan? Uh, for three and four for me, I've kind of flip-flopped between Javarius Johnson and Capers. Okay. Javarius pick. Johnson has gotten, a, he's gotten a lot of hype from this coaching staff this spring. I would love to see what he can do. He's about the, he's the same height, I think, as uh, D-Rob. So I'm going to assume he's around the same play style. So I could see him playing like the being the four, being another slot guy. And I could definitely see Capers being over him, but I think Javaris Johnson right now is my third pick. Javaris Johnson has gotten so much hype during the spring. Actually, I kind of feel bad. You go and look on AuburnTigers.com, and you've got the picture of him, but as it turns out, the picture is actually Christian Tut. 
They both wear the same number. <laughs> they both look very similar. But as it turns out, it's actually Christian Tut from that Mississippi State game in 2019. But well, see, I think the reason he has a chance to do this is because he can prove himself as a specialist. He might be yeah. the punt returner. And if he's that, then we're going to see how how he plays and what kind of agility, what kind of elusiveness he has. And I think he's perfect for backing up D-Rob in the slot if that's where he plays, which I think D-Rob's going to play all over the place. So I think Johnson's going to get a lot of playing time. He's kind of one of my key backups. At number four, I have Kobe Hudson. The uh, quarterback converted receiver out of high school enters his sophomore season. I don't think with as much hype as he did in his freshman year. Uh, I've got him fourth on the depth chart. You look at his numbers from last season, seven receptions, 70 yards, had 29 yards off of three catches in the bowl game, had a 20-yard catch uh, against Alabama, had that over-the-shoulder 18-yard catch against Georgia early on in the season. Auburn kind of utilized him for very specific set plays. Whenever they they were going to Kobe Hudson, you can tell Nix was going to Kobe Hudson. Like, it was set to go uh, his direction. I wonder how this coaching staff's going to use use him. He's a natural wide receiver, even though he was playing quarterback out of high school. Does do any of y'all get Ricardo Lewis vibes off of Hudson? Not because he number. wears the number, <laughs> but because they're both almost the same size, about six one, six two. They both kind of play similarly. Do y'all either of y'all get that vibe? A, a little bit, not a ton, but I see where some of his the short game stuff. Yeah. It is very similar with him. So I I like the Kobe Hudson pick because I think he's going to be the next best receiver. But for my fourth guy, I'm going with Shedrick Jackson, the best blocking receiver. And Shedrick Jackson, he's had his moments pat, catching the ball. He had that two-point conversion in the 2019 Iron Bowl. He, he had playing time last year. But I think that they're going to have him. It's kind of like when Bruce Pearl starts his best defenders. I think that the Auburn offense is going to have him on the field a lot for his blocking ability. Dylan, number four. My fourth is, as I said earlier, Xavion Capers. I really like his size. I like his route running ability. I think he's he's the same height as Elijah Canyon, so he's probably going to be another outside guy. And I really like those two uh, on the same field together. And then I have Shedra Jackson as my fourth. I think he's a great blocker. Let's see if he can get him more involved in the passing game. On the other side of this break, we'll talk to Brad Law of the Auburn Sports Network, get his thoughts on the SEC expansion, JT Thorch, Reeve Cooper, all that good stuff. On the other side of this break, you're listening to On the Line. Back on the line, Lance Daw, Jacob Hillman, Dylan Lark here with you in the studio. 2.34 p.m. on this wonderful Friday afternoon. We are now joined by a very special guest, Brad Law of the Auburn Sports Network. Mr. Law, how are you doing today? Guys, we're doing great. War Eagle to everybody, and I um, hope everybody's gearing up for an exciting weekend, one of the few we have left before football season absolutely yeah just really excited about this upcoming football season and that's something I wanted to ask you is I know the football season you know it's just literally right around the quarter compared to last season you know with COVID and all how are you guys at the Auburn Sports Network preparing for this season well we're in the office and uh, that was different from this time last year so uh, that's that's pretty nice um, you know to have a, a traditional uh First Saturday in September kickoff, we're, we're kind of used to that timeline. And so this is kind of the time of the year that you start, you know, talking to the guys on the crew and you start thinking about guests for uh, for pregame shows and you start planning the coaches shows. And 
Um, it, it's the same way with with everybody else, I think. I mean, we, we all know that we're down to just a few weeks now before the season, and um, and, and it ramps up. So that's, that's kind of the way it is here, too. News yesterday, JT Thor being drafted by the Charlotte Hornets, Sharif Cooper being drafted by the Atlanta Hawks, going 37th and 48th, respectively, to those two teams. Talk about the upside that th- both of these guys have, especially going mid-second round. Yeah, especially with their placement uh, in the draft. I think most people expected both guys to go uh, earlier, to go a little bit sooner. And so I think you'll, you'll see the Hornets and the Hawks years from now talk about the value that they were able to get for those guys in the second round. Uh, JT, with his length, uh, with his savvy, he's a very smart basketball player in his athleticism. As he adds muscle to his frame and as he uh, gets accustomed to the physicality in the NBA game. Uh, I think his ceiling is tremendously high. Um, he, he's got a really good shot from distance. Um, he is a, a strong defender. He can get low uh, to defend, so, he, so you, he stays balanced really well. And love the upside on JT. We know Sharif, and I think he, he goes higher. He goes earlier in the draft if he's a little taller and if his three-point numbers are better. Um, uh, a year ago. So I think that'll be the focus. He'll work a little bit on his defense. Uh, he'll work on his three-point shot. Can't work on his height. That is what it is. But, you know, we saw how well he can create. And especially with Atlanta, with Trey Young, uh, and the ability to come in and, and kind of work alongside him, develop uh, under uh, Trey Young or alongside Trey Young, they can do similar things uh, from, a, uh, from the perspective of, of creating. And, and getting to the basket on the dribble, getting opportunities for other guys. And, and I think that's where he really shines. What does it say about Bruce Pearl and the program he's built here at Auburn when he has three straight NBA draft picks, and this year he had two after Chumo Kiki and Isaac Okoro were both drafted in the first round? They're not first-round draft picks, but it's still a big thing to say, hey, we went from the bottom to having two NBA draft picks this year. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. And kind of every year there's that new precedent, uh, right? And you know, Isaac Okoro, who's just, I guess, second team all-rookie uh, in the NBA after his first year. And they're looking for big things out of him. You saw Chuma really come on strong the second half of this season. They love him in Orlando, what he's going to do there. I think what it says is that um, Bruce Pearl obviously is a talent evaluator. Um, he is also a talent developer. And now you've seen that. Um, his first couple of years, you saw the young talent infusion. The, you know, if you think about it, like the, the sea level, right, or, or the, the tide at the beach kind of getting higher as the day goes on. You see that talent level start to improve, and you have younger guys. Well, now years four, five, six, now those guys get drafted, and you see what they're doing in the NBA. Not just a talent evaluator as, as a 16-, 17-year-old but a talent developer once he gets them on campus. Both in the NFL and the NBA draft uh, this this year, Auburn players fell further than they were mocked to be selected. Is there a reason why they fell, and is this something that Auburn fans should be worried about? No, definitely not anything to be worried about. Every, every draft, um, so many hours, so much manpower goes into evaluations um, for, for these draft picks, and um, I, I just think it's a. It just happens to have fallen that way 
this year. Um, not to not to undersell the answer there, but I really do think it doesn't go any further than that. Guys are evaluated, you know, um, and and teams make their selections. You can go back through and look at the first round of the NBA draft last night, and there are a handful of guys who, in all of the material leading up to the draft, certain players were talked about um, as, well, there's no way this guy is a first-round talent. All it takes is one team. All it takes is one team uh, to turn you from a surefire can't-miss first-round talent to, well, now you slide into the second round. And by the same token, all it takes is one team to to think that a guy is first-round material. And that's how things fall. It was announced earlier today that Texas and Oklahoma have officially accepted the SEC's invitation to uh, to join the conference. Are you for this move or are you against it? Yeah, I like it. I like it not because simply uh, what it means for you know the next couple of years or even 25 or 26. I, I think what we are seeing, uh, I think this is part of a much bigger landscape change uh, across college athletics. The SEC is plenty strong for 2021. Um, the SEC would have been plenty strong in its current configuration probably for 2030. Uh, or at least for 2025. But you know, with a playoff coming along and with an NCAA president who is increasingly hands-off and recently said, you know, the, the conferences should have uh, more power to legislate and to enforce, I, I think this is a move that strengthens the SEC not for five years down the road, but for 10, 15, 20 years down the road. It becomes more powerful there will be more autonomy, and uh, you know the the rich get richer. It means they have more money to to throw around. Money, power, it's usually all linked, and so that, that's what I think you see from that standpoint. I think it's a really, really positive thing because it means that Auburn is a part of the league that will set the pace for the rest of college athletics. Which road trip will you be looking forward to most, Texas or Oklahoma? Have you been to either of them before, or? Um, I, I've not been to the University of Texas. I was in Austin. I've spent some time in Austin uh, a few times. I was with baseball in Round Rock this past February, which is just about 20 or 30 miles north of Austin. Um, yeah, uh, but, you know, I'm, I used to be a big professional wrestling fan, and you got Jim Ross, the wrestling announcer, who's, you know, big-time Sooner. So probably Texas a little more so than Oklahoma, but it's close. I'll, I'll look forward to both of them. I know that. You talk about this move being uh, beneficial for the entire conference, but I want to talk about Auburn specifically. Does this help them or does this hinder them? Because when you look at potential divisions, uh, it would it would be really difficult for Auburn to try and climb out of, of a division that included Alabama, LSU, uh, and then potentially Texas or Oklahoma. I mean, you know, that's a that question makes sense. But now let me ask you this. When it's 95 degrees outside, how much hotter is it really if it's 98? If it's 98 degrees outside, how much hotter is it really if it's 100? If it's raining really hard, how much wetter are you going to get if it rains a little bit harder? I think that when you are in the toughest conference in the country, and not just in football, but you go up and down the sports and – you may find a couple of sports where the SEC is not the leader, where it's not already the best of the best every time out. 
And, you know, when you're at this level, you're constantly competing, number one, against yourself. You're just trying to maximize what you can do. And, you know, if Auburn, from a facility standpoint, from a recruiting standpoint, from a student-athlete experience standpoint, is maximizing what it can do, it can compete. Uh, Speaking specifically about football, this is one of the top 15 programs nationally throughout the history of Auburn football, Um, one of the top 15 programs nationally. So if you break it outside the, the conference bubble, well, that includes Texas, Oklahoma. They're among those top 15 um, that they've been right there with throughout history. So I don't think it weakens. Again, I think everybody is stronger and everybody's pushed to do more uh, with, by these additions. There are a lot of there's a lot of talk right now uh, in terms of how the SEC should be cut up after Oklahoma and Texas join the conference. In terms of divisions, how would you cut the SEC up? Should we keep the East and the West, or should the SEC potentially move to maybe a four pod system of four teams like the SEC Network proposed just a couple of weeks ago? Well, to do that, and I think that's coming eventually, but I don't know that it happens with sixteen. I think if you go to eighteen, or if you go to twenty or 24 or something like that, um, that's where I think the pods make a little more sense. And I understand where it comes from with trying to play every other team um, a little closer together, where student-athletes have the opportunity to play everybody in the league over a four-year period of time. I think, though, if you stay at 16, what I would do is simply put Texas and Oklahoma in the West, move Missouri to the West, and then bring both Auburn and Alabama over to the East. And now in the East, you have what is essentially um, almost the original SEC or the SEC that we knew from, what, the 60s through 1991, um, with the exceptions, I guess, of of LSU and um, Ole Miss and Mississippi State. So over there in the East, uh, you would have all those. So you would have Auburn and Georgia, Auburn and Tennessee, Auburn and Florida, every year uh over in the west you have the old southwest conference you'd have texas and arkansas and lsu and missouri and a&m and oklahoma you'd have those over in the west and i would also in that scenario take your conference schedule to 10 games i would go 10 conference games a year that way you'd play seven um consistent division opponents you might have one crossover that you played every year or in those particular east-west designations, just rotate. You would rotate three every year, and you'd still get to play everybody on a consistent basis, a more frequent basis, and with 10 conference games, I mean, that schedule is ridiculously attractive every single year. Yeah, I had I had not thought about I thought obviously people have been talking about potentially moving it to nine games, but I had not thought yeah. about potentially taking that to ten games. That would be an incredibly exciting schedule, and from a revenue standpoint, that would be incredible for the entire yeah. conference. Mr. Law, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Guys, it's a pleasure anytime. Hope everyone has a fantastic weekend. Yes, sir. You do the same. That was Brad Law of the Auburn Sports Network joining us on the line. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about the Braves for a second. They have an opportunity tonight to get back to 500. Can they do it? You're on the line. 
Wrapping up our number one of On the Line, Lance Daw, Jacob Hillman, Dylan Lark here in the studio with you. Really appreciate Brad Law of the Auburn Sports Network taking some time to uh, to call in and, and give his thoughts on all the things that are happening around the Auburn Athletics programs. Really appreciate that. Want to talk a little bit about the Atlanta Braves here for a second. They've kind of been waffling back and forth, back and forth between 500 throughout the entire season. They lost Acuna just a few weeks ago. They've still been battling, trying to get back to that point where they're sitting at 500. They've got an opportunity to do it tonight, folks. They they beat the Mets. I believe they won the series against the Mets. They beat them last night 6-3. to three. They're back home playing the Milwaukee Brewers. Jacob, do they get it done tonight? Do they get back to 500? Well, as, as I was saying off the air, since the All-Star break, the Braves have gone win-loss, win-loss consistently. Well, considering they won last night, they're probably going to lose tonight. With that being said, I like Tuki Toussaint a lot right now. He has played his tail off in the few starts he's gotten this year. He's 1-1 one one with a 1.32 ERA since getting called up. I don't know. I think this might be the game that it happens. The bigger question is, if they do win tonight, can they get over the hump and get over 500 for the first time this season? There's been three teams that haven't done that this year, and Braves are one of them. Yeah, the other two are like the Marlins and the Pirates. Sitting at 51-52 and 52 overall right now. Like you mentioned, since the All-Star break, they've literally gone loss, win, loss, win, loss, win, loss, win, loss, win. And then this entire series against the New York Mets, they've gone win-loss, 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 and then a win last night. Uh, I mean, they're consistent. I mean, that's a yes, good thing. Yes, they are. Freddie Freeman's been able to pick it up a little bit recently in the loss of Acuna Jr. Atlanta, again, sitting at 51-52 and 52 overall, 4.0 games behind in the NL East. Another question that I want to pose to you, Jacob, is do you see Atlanta finishing any higher than that at the end of the season? Higher than third? Higher than third. Do they get to second? Yeah, I'll say confidently they finish higher than third. Now, the bigger question is, do they win it? I don't know about that. I think they'll get ahead of the Phillies, though, and I don't see Washington or Miami making any kind of push in the second half. So it's between the Braves and the Phillies, and of course, you're not going to make a wild card spot being second in the division. So it's all about winning the division to get into the playoffs, especially in the NL with the NL West being such a tough division with the Giants, Dodgers, and Padres. So I'll say confidently, yes, the Braves finish second in the NL East. Now, if you're asking me if they're going to win, I don't know. I, I think it depends on the health of Jacob DeGrom. If he stays healthy the rest of the year after, I mean, I think he's out right now, but whenever he gets back, if he stays healthy, I think it's over. Talk to me about some of the things that Atlanta does well, and they're going to have to do in order to get to that second spot. Obviously, they lose Acuna, but Freddie Freeman picking it up a little bit in his absence. What is the bullpen doing right now in order to kind of get this program back on track? Well, the issue is the bullpen, and I I was hoping that the Braves would try to make a move in the bullpen, but today, they made moves that they needed to. They went out and got outfielders and Adam Duvall, as well as Rosario, Eddie Rosario from the Indians. But, like I said, it's all about the bullpen because the starting pitching has been pretty decent this year. You got Max Free, you got Ian Anderson, who's injured right now. But Drew Smiley and Charlie Morton, after they had horrendous starts to the season, they have really come together and figured it out. Who we'll asked Ari Noah? He started the year off well. He's going to be back from injury soon. And then you've got Kyle Muller. He got called up earlier this year, along with Tuki Tucson, who've had several great outings. So, starting pitching, great, as you asked about the bullpen. I don't know. 
I think it's a lot of decision making. I mean, you shouldn't be bringing AJ Minter got designated for assignment a few weeks ago after his last stint. But whenever you're bringing guys in like Minter who who have not been successful, and it's a one run game, you're leading by one run, or you're tied, or you're down by one run. That that's just not the decisions you need to be making. You need to be bringing in your best guys like a Luke Jackson mm-hmm. or a Chris Martin. Those are the guys you want to be bringing in instead of the AJ Mincers. You know what I love about the Atlanta bullpen? I've not, I'm not a huge baseball guy, but I went to a game on the third uh, this month uh, against the Marlins. It was that 1 0 game that they had, and they brought in, I believe it was like somewhere like after the fifth inning, it was just a, a different pitcher every single, mm-hmm. in, like next inning it would be Luke Jackson, next inning it would be Chris Martin. I realized, wait, they've got a Chris Martin from Coldplay, and they've got a Will Smith, the actor, on their, in their bullpen. <laughs> got some fantastic names uh, in that bullpen. Something that I wanted to also touch on before we head out uh, during the, uh, out of this first hour is Brad Law mentioned. 10 potential conference games in the SEC instead of doing nine. I think that is a really interesting topic. What it's are you wild. guys thought? What are y'all guys thoughts? Just take it completely cutting out two non-conference games, 10 conference games. Think about how much revenue that would be. It's the first time I've heard someone seriously say it. I've heard people mention it, but I've heard, you know, the SEC's been very, very anti going to nine games. So I think it's very possible they go from, we're not going to do nine games, so we'll do 10 games. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I, I want to keep the non-conference games. I do like having one of the easy opponents along. With, I mean, it would work out well. You would play a power a group of five or FCS along with probably a power five non-con. But, I mean, that that's just an absolute gauntlet if you do that. But, of course, when we get to 18 or 20 teams, yeah, you got to do it. That's what, I was, that's what I was thinking is the more that the SEC expands. And I, we don't know if they're going to expand past Texas or Oklahoma uh, we, we've heard rumblings about potentially Michigan and Ohio State or Florida State and Clemson joining joining the, the league. They'd have to change the name at that point. Uh, but, yeah, if they if the way that they've got it set up right now, they're going to have to, in order to keep some of these rivalries, uh, quote-unquote, they're going to have to, to expand the conference schedule. So when you look at a team like Auburn, if they're splitting it up east and west and they put LSU in the west, I'd still want to play LSU every year. That's a rivalry. And so you wouldn't be able to do that if you're going off a four-pod system. You're going to have to rotate teams out. So, yeah, I think nine or ten conference games make sense. You're going to be able to bring in some of those rivalries that Auburn that Auburn uh, traditionally has had in the SEC West. And then also you'll be able to keep some of the rivalries that they used to have, like against Florida, against Tennessee. So I think, yeah, I really like the idea of potentially moving to ten conference games uh, because it still gives you two tune-up games potentially, or it gives you one non-conference game week one that everybody can get excited about. So it's a lot of opportunity to generate revenue because those two other uh, other, other games don't really seem uh, to be generating as much as uh, a conference game would. That's going to do it for hour number one. Hour number two coming up, we've got Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South going to talk Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC, divisions, pods. Who does it benefit the most in the SEC? We'll talk all of that on the other side of this break. the line 
Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on foxsports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. You're on the line with Lance Daw, Jacob Hillman, Dylan Lark on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. Number to call 334-321-1390 or text us your thoughts at 334-564-1840. Christian Clemente of AuburnSports.com joining us for this entire second hour. And then as well on the phones, we have a very special guest with us, Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South. Connor, to start things off, I just wanted to congratulate you on you getting your Twitter account back. Shout out to J-Boy for uh, helping you get that fixed. Oh, man. J-Boy's a good dude. He really is. And the fact that he was able to help me out after I basically spent three months um, getting nowhere with Twitter support, I was so appreciative that he was able to uh, put me in touch with the right people. But, man, you spend three months away from Twitter and you, you realize, wow, I, I don't really have the same sort of voice that I kind of thought I did. And with all that was going on in college football, it was good to be able to get the, the platform back to be able to fire off some takes and, you know, occasionally throw up like a horns down or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And these last three months, I would say, for college football have just been absolutely wild. Playoff expansion, Texas and Oklahoma, a lot of different things going on. I want to start off, though with the fact that it was announced earlier today that Texas and Oklahoma have officially accepted the SEC's invitation to join the conference. Are you for this or are you against this move? I'm for it for the SEC. I mean, I'm biased in saying that it's great for for college football content. It absolutely is. There's no doubt about it. Every SEC fan is now more interested in this league because Texas and Oklahoma are coming to it. And I think the divisions are a bit stale when you have 11 of the last 12 winners have come from one division, I, I think that we could use a little bit of a shakeup in the SEC and bringing in two massive brands like Oklahoma and Texas is going to be great. I, I think that the long-term goal just makes so much sense. And Greg Sankey is out here playing chess while everybody's playing checkers. And I don't even know if Kevin Warren has sat down at the table yet to play checkers, but eventually he'll play checkers. Greg Sankey, what he has done to look into the crystal ball of college football and pull off this move is remarkable. And it's going to coincide with the 12-team playoff. And it's going to allow the SEC to control this new system even more so. We were talking before this was announced that the SEC is going to be able to get three or four teams in on a given year. Man, that's going to be automatic. There's never going to be any debate about who the best conference in college football is. It's going to belong to the SEC before the season during the season, and then when the selection committee actually has to make that decision of who gets in, they're going to give the benefit of the doubt to the SEC, and they should because it is the best conference. And so from that standpoint, I, I support it. If I'm you know, South Carolina or Mississippi State, Kentucky, Missouri, I, I'm wondering how this is going to look for my team long term, but the, the benefit for those teams is that they'll be rewarded financially for it, and if they're getting extra $20 million in their pocket every year, I think they'll uh, they'll take their paychecks and be, be – uh, be appreciative of the the presence that Texas and Oklahoma are going to provide. So what do you think outside the SEC is the strategy for these conferences? Is the Big 12 just going to dissolve? Is the Big 10 going to look at 
other teams from the ACC or the Big 12 to get out? What is going to be the strategy to try to keep up with the SEC from the other conferences? Well, there's nothing they can do to keep up right now at this point. And the Big 12 is is basically doing the kicking and screaming as they're getting pulled out of the bar type of routine with what they're doing to with ESPN and trying to sue and all those different things. So I, I think that the Big 12 and Pac-12 merging, it, it, it it's a, a Hail Mary at this point. And even if they were to do that, there are still – brands and, and teams that don't really move the needle in the same sort of way. And I, I think the Big Ten is content to stand pat because the Big Ten has a great business model. I mean, they really do. They, they're making more money per year than these SEC programs, and they're content to be these institutions that pride themselves on academics as well as athletics. But the issue is, is that when you watch the SEC pull off a move like this, the SEC is just providing even more separation. And I think the Big Ten, even if it were to add a, a Kansas or an Iowa State, it's not Texas and Oklahoma. If you're picking at the carcass of the Big 12, there's no two brands, two teams you'd rather have than Texas and Oklahoma. And the SEC is going to be able to add that. Nobody else is going to be able to make an addition quite like that unless you're able to pull off getting Notre Dame into your conference, which I don't think the Big Ten is going to be able to do. I don't think the ACC is going to be able to do. So I, everybody's going to want to expand, and you're going to look back on this move and say, wow, the SEC expanded in the best possible way, and everybody else just kind of did because they were forced to. Well, we're talking about expansion from these other conferences, but you know there have been rumors swirling around over the past few days that Greg Sankey apparently had reached out to Michigan, Ohio State, Clemson, Florida State. Will we see the SEC expand again anytime soon, or is this it until 2025? I think it's going to be it until 2025. I think the SEC has always been really smart in that it expands right before the new system gets put in place. That's what they did with Mizzou and Texas A&M. That's what they're doing with Texas and Oklahoma. I think it's pretty sad for the Big Ten that there were more rumors about Michigan and Ohio State leaving for the SEC than there were Texas and Oklahoma, like rumors about them coming to the Big Ten. That's that's where we're at right now, where the Big Ten is probably – has these these teams who are looking around going, what what's the long-term plan here? What what in the world are we going to do? Are we going to be able to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, or are they just going to dominate? We're going to be seen as an inferior conference for the next decade. I, I think that there, there probably is a long-term plan to want to continue to expand, but I just don't see the SEC adding, you know, four, six teams that quickly. They haven't done that in the past, but then again, if you had asked me two weeks ago, do you think Texas and Oklahoma are going to the SEC? I probably would have laughed you out of the room. Is this a move by the SEC to not necessarily overthrow the NCAA, but kind of move toward a college football world where the NCAA is not needed? I think so. I think that's maybe the, the long-term play. And Greg Sankey has been pretty vocal about that. And he said at times, you know, he's maybe been a little bit too critical of the NCAA, but it took the pandemic, I think, for the masses to realize just how little power the NCAA has and how the Power Five controls this thing. It's not like the college football playoff is controlled by the NCAA. The NCAA controls the NCAA men's basketball tournament, women's basketball tournament, but they're not controlling the college football playoff. That's a separate entity. And if you can operate in a different world, then you're going to do it. And I think that as we get into the debate about pay for play, which is the next step, then that's the discussion that's going to be had. And if they're going to want to create their own set of rules wherein pay-for-play 
is the new standard, then that would make sense. But that's more of a, a down the road play, and that's something that we maybe we'll be talking about um, being a realistic scenario at the end of the twenty twenty. I think the question that's been asked the most about this expansion is how the schedule will change and shape out. What do you expect to happen with the schedule? What do you want to happen? You want divisions, pods? What What do you want? I'm not really as hung up. I, I prefer probably pods over divisions, but I, I think the biggest thing is they're going to get to a nine-game conference schedule, and the timing of it is finally going to make sense. The SEC was smart to stick it to eight-game conference schedule. The Big Ten did it because it wanted to incentivize its TV package, and it hurt itself by doing it. In the first two years after it switched from the eight-game conference schedule to the nine-game conference schedule, it watched Ohio State get left out of the playoffs. And it really was something that set the league back, and they complained about the SEC and ACC not moving to nine games when they're like, hey, why would we move off this? We get into the playoffs every single year. That's what it's all about. And the Big Ten didn't see that. And so I think that the SEC now, though, will go to the nine-game conference schedule because you can sell it to the t- for the TV package, uh, a deal that's going to be just an astronomical number that the SEC is going to be able to get. And also with the 12-team playoff, there's going to be more margin for error. You can lose three or four maybe games and, and get into the playoff, whereas now it's, it's a, a field that is exclusive to undefeated teams and one-loss teams. And why in the world would you have a nine-game conference schedule when you don't have to. And the selection committee has said, eight-game conference schedule is fine, player one, power five non-conference game, and you're good, and you're going to be judged in the same sort of way. So I think that we will see, though, the nine-game conference schedule in the SEC, and it makes more sense now with these teams really loading up. If you look at future non-conference schedules for some of these teams like Georgia, Alabama, Florida, they have already said we're willing to play 11 power five teams in a given year. So we are definitely heading in that direction. I want to step away from expansion talk here for for a second. I want people here in Auburn to hear your thoughts on Bo Nix. You put out an article recently uh, on your five biggest gripes with the 2021 preseason All-SEC teams, and Bo Nix being third team was your number one complaint. I don't want you to hold back at all. I want the listeners to hear this. But why was that your number one complaint with the preseason teams? Well, it's good that at least people aren't saying that Bo Nix is in the top five for the Heisman discussion, which people were saying (laughs) coming into last year. Not going to name names on that or anything, but Bo Nix has yet to be a decent SEC quarterback. He's been an average SEC quarterback at best. The home road splits are just staggering. He is a bad quarterback on the road. He is a benchable quarterback on the road. You can look at his 105 quarterback rating on the road. He has just been a, a shell of himself in those situations, and I think he has too many bad habits that two years in, yes, he is more experienced than any SEC quarterback, and I think that's why he got the benefit of the doubt this year because it's really lacking when you look at the quarterbacks in the SEC. There was only three quarterbacks at SEC Media Days. All three of them, by the way, got all SEC consideration. So I, I think that Bo Nix has just struggled to find that consistency, and who knows how it's going to be in Mike Bobo's offense. I have my doubts about it because I have some things that – I wish I could go play Bo Nix's career back and watch what it would have looked like if he had been able to wait a year and maybe develop under Malik Willis, who has turned out to be the better college quarterback. And I I think that Bo Nix just does too many things, whether it's fading to his right, like the shortstop who can never just set his feet and make that throw on time to first base. You know, I I think that he just is a a quarterback that has really struggled to establish that basic foundation. And I think that, T.J. Finley is in a good position to potentially take over that job by the middle of the season. And I think we'll look back and say Bo Nix was not worthy of being a preseason All-SEC quarterback. 
you mentioned Bo Nix's road woes. Do you think the Penn State and LSU games on the road will kind of tell the story of how the season will go for Bo Nix and Auburn? Yeah. If he responds to that, I'll tip my cap and I'll say he's really grown because with the exception of probably Alabama, nobody in college football has a more difficult first half of the schedule than Auburn does. If you look at that road trip to Penn State and then you start SEC play with LSU and Georgia, that's brutal, man. We're going to find out how, how good you are, how much you've improved. And I worry about the, the receiver talent around him. Of course, I know that's been a well-documented subject on the Plains. And you can't just hand the ball off to Tank Bigsby every single time. They're going to have to be able to figure some things out in the passing game or else he's going to see so many eight-man boxes. And that is something I worry about with him because you worry about the durability and, and him being able to play a full season. But, yeah, I, I just tend to think that those games are really going to show us everything we need to know about Bo Nix. And if he has really made those strides that we've heard a lot about throughout this offseason, if, if this is going to be a different version of him in this offense with Mike Bobo, then uh, th- those games will, will really tell the tale. I want to say before we move on here real quick that anybody out there that knows you, knows your knows the podcast, you talked about Malik Willis, uh, they know that you were extremely high on him. I just wanted to throw out there, I'm a Malik Willis truther as well, just wanted to throw out that out there. Uh, but something that has gotten lost in the shuffle of all of this expansion talk with the SEC is playoff expansion. Nobody's really talking about that anymore. So the first thing I wanted to ask you, I wanted to get your thoughts on the expansion, is 12 the perfect number? or should it have been 8 or 16 or should they even have expanded the playoff at all let's just do Mike Leach's 64 team playoff <laughs> I think we can all agree uh, you know I'm okay with 12 and I wasn't one of those people banging the drum saying that it needs to expand it needs to expand I like 12 better than 8 because I didn't like the idea that 6 of the potential 8 bids were going to be automatic qualifiers I don't like that not all conferences are created equal the SEC is not created equal to other conferences you don't win 11 national championships in 15 years and say that that is the same exact conference strength that the Pac-12 has. Pac-12 and Big 12 haven't won a national championship during that stretch. There's not a, that's not a coincidence. That hasn't just been a totally random thing. So I, I think that 12 is a better number because you do have the ability to reward those at-large teams. And you have that margin for error where it's not just strictly, oh, did you win your conference championship? Are you a Power 5 team? You have zero or one loss? There's more room for interpretation, and I like that. And I like that some of these group of five teams are going to get rewarded. I had Jamie Shadwell on the podcast a couple of months ago, and he said, you know, one of the things that we want to see is that it's not just one group of five teams. It's just the most deserving teams in college football. That's all they want. That's all they want to be able to see is have that path. And I think you're looking at a situation this year where there can be multiple group of five teams in the top ten with with Cincinnati and Coastal Carolina. So I like that. I think it opens up more possibilities and gives people hope. That's why they're doing this. It's going to be huge to be able to sell that and you know potentially worth $1.2 billion if we're talking about this long term. And I think that's the, that's the move that a lot of people who are sick of the same four teams at the top are, are looking forward to. And you know, get, get some new blood in there. And even though I don't think it's going to make a difference for the championship, it will give us something new to talk about. Even if the playoff expands, and this is just kind of a joke, and you touched on this earlier, does the national champion actually come from the SEC every year from here on out? Because whoever sur- survives <laughs> that gauntlet should be well prepared to make a deep playoff run, even in Mike Leach's system. I was trying to think about it. When is the SEC not going to be in a national championship? How long is that going to take? Because 
2014 was the last time that the, that the SEC was not represented in the national championship. And it, we're looking at now six consecutive years of it. Yeah, there will be the occasional Ohio State. You know, We'll, we'll see potentially uh, Clemson moving forward. Oklahoma this year is the one that fascinates me because they're trying to capitalize on this window as much as possible with Alex Grinch, who is a much better defensive mind than anybody that they've had there for the last decade since Brent Venables left. So I, I'm fascinated by by Oklahoma because they finally have the talent to be able to stay on the field with some of these SEC teams and the way that that defense is built. Um, so there will be an occasional year like that. But, yeah, until further notice, the SEC is at least going to have a team in the national championship, and I wouldn't expect that to change, especially when expansion happens. Final question for you here, and then we'll let you get out of here. Does the playoff expansion and does the SEC expansion benefit or does it harm Auburn? It probably, you know, gosh, they're a tough team to figure out. They really are. They really are because year one, the Harson era, I don't want to assume a floor and we, we've, we've come to know Auburn for the, the, the random year in which everything just kind of lines up well and they have all the pieces in place. They haven't really had the sustained year to year success where you're talking about three consecutive years as a top 15 team. So I'm going to, I'm going to say it benefits them. Because if they're the team that can get into that 12-team field and it's not just, oh, you, you have to be undefeated, I think Auburn is, is in a place now where, depending on the way that, that recruiting goes with Harson, if he's able to kind of build that up in the next couple of years, then they could be a team that stands to benefit and gets in, the, gets in and has the talent to be able to beat some of these lesser teams. And maybe a team that comes out of the Big Ten that you know they see in that, in that first-round matchup in the playoffs they can hang on the field with those teams and beat them because they'll have the talent to be able to do that. But, yeah, I mean, I can, I can see both sides of that. I don't think it's going to be definitive one way or the other. Mr. O'Gara, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Tell everybody where they can find all of your great content. Absolutely. SaturdayDownSouth.com has so much right now. I always say it's the one-stop shop for all things college sports right now and there's just a million things going on with college sports so much stuff that we have planned um on twitter we're at sat sat down south uh now that i am back on twitter uh it's at cj o'gara so yeah we just have a, a lot of a lot of good stuff in the work it's good to be good to be back and uh and talking ball again mr o'gara again thank you so much for your time hope you have a great rest of your weekend absolutely appreciate it guys that was Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South. We will continue our conversation about JT Thor and Sharif Cooper that we had earlier in the show with Christian Clemente of AuburnSports.com. Stick with us. You're on the line. Back on the line, Lance Daw, Jacob Hillman, Dylan Lark here with you again. If you want to call in, give us your thoughts on the SEC expansion. Give us your thoughts on how many conference games the SEC should play. Call us 334-321-1390 or text us at 334-564-1840. We've got Christian Clemente of AuburnSports.com here with, with us in the studio. Christian, you're back from your trip from Montana. How was it, man? I am. Uh, it was good. You know, it was a little little bit of a tough trip because it's a 60 year or it's a 30 hour drive there and then obviously you have to work your way back at some point so that was a little bit of a grind but I'm happy to be back did you stop at a hotel on the way there or was it just 30 hours and then occasional stops at a gas station or something oh no like that? we we split it up we did uh three 10 hour days on the way there yeah. and then on the way back we did two 15 hour days so. that is 
very serious. That's <laughs> I, tough. I've never had yeah. a drive like that in my entire life. And I can imagine, I, I, yeah, I mentioned this to you off air, like on the way somewhere, like you're going to a trip with your friends, like it's always awesome. Like you're always going to have a great time in the car. I cannot imagine it was great for 30 hours, but four or five yard, four or five hour drive uh, w- would be fun. On the way back, though, it was probably not entertaining at all. No, we were so ready to get back to Auburn. It was not even funny. I, I when you imagine. when you have to plan it out day by day, that's <laughs> when you know it's a long trip. Well, especially when it's a three day journey. <laughs> I, I I've made some road trips, but not like that. So news last night. JT Thor, Sharif Cooper getting drafted honestly felt like we may never, we wouldn't see an Auburn Tiger get drafted because we had to wait so long. So I wanted to ask you individually for both these two players about, you know, if they went too low, what do they bring to their respective teams? Do you think JT Thor, who was picked by the Charlotte Hornets, 37th overall, too high, too low, just just right? What are your thoughts? I think it was just right for JT Thor. I think he's a project that, you know, maybe two, three years down the line, you'll see him making a big impact for the Hornets. But for now, He's probably going to be on the G League team, and he needs to bulk up a little bit. That was the same story when he first got to college. But he has that immense potential, and that's why a team did take a chance on him towards the beginning of the second round there. I mean, Bruce Pearl called him his best pro prospect on last year's team, so no dig at Shreve Cooper, but I think JT Thor will be a better NBA player. So I think that was a good pick for the Hornets at that spot. Yeah, I'm really excited. Something that we've talked about for a couple of days now is comparing Sharif Cooper and JT Thor, their three-point shot. That form is there for JT Thor. Like He definitely has that shooter stroke. It's just getting getting enough time to actually develop that in the NBA. I think he's going to be an exceptional player. And I can't remember if it was you, Jacob, or if it was Dylan that made the Giannis comparison. You know, Giannis was incredibly skinny, didn't have a lot of weight whenever he came into the league. Imagine if JT Thor is actually able to, to exercise and get some weight on him. Imagine what he could potentially be down the line, especially if he gets more comfortable handling the ball. I think he's an exceptional prospect at 37th overall. But Sharif Cooper, a guy that was mocked in, in the in the lottery just a few months ago to potentially go that high, fell all the way to 48th in the draft. Jacob Hillman's Hawks took him. Uh, really exciting stuff to see Sharif kind of stay in the, in the area. Did he go too high or too low in your mind? I think he might have gone a little bit too low. I think teams got a little concerned by his defense, which can be combined with his size or lack thereof, and then his three-point shooting. But you can develop his three-point shooting. I think his defense can improve because it was a little odd. He looked slow on defense, which is so weird because he's so fast on offense. So I think that's something that you could work on. I think teams just got a little too scared by that, which is a little odd to me. But I think that's a very good situation for Sharif Cooper there. He can potentially be the backup point guard more likely he'll probably be in the G League or like a third string point guard for the Hawks this year. But I think even though he did fall, he fell into a good situation with the Hawks at 48. Question to you about his defense. Do you think it was more of an athleticism thing or do you think it was a desire issue back on defense? I don't think it was necessarily a desire issue. I mean, he played really, really hard. I think Mm -hmm. I, I don't I couldn't pinpoint it what his defensive issues were because he has one of the quickest first steps in basketball on offense. But then he gets blown by on defense. So I really don't know what the issue is there. Could it have been size impact and that in general for him to fall, like just him playing on offense with the smaller size and on defense as well? I could see that a little bit. I don't know. I think defense is something that Shreve will improve at. It's Mm -hmm. obviously never going to be the strong suit of his game, but 
I think he'll get better there. And I think that might have been one of the big concerns for him actually falling in the draft. Shreve Cooper, Trey Young, very similar aspects of their game. Do you see him growing under Trey Young or do you see Trey Young trying to to keep as many minutes as possible from from Sharif Cooper? No, I think uh, I think Trey Young will certainly help him out. Um, Sharif had his introductory press conference today. Uh, I hopped in on the Zoom. He said Trey Young was the first player to call him and congratulate him and welcome him to Atlanta. So I think Trey Young will certainly help him out, and Sharif will be able to grow his game with the Hawks. You've been our insider guy for Auburn basketball, been able to uh, to witness some of the practices, wit- getting to witness the glory of this national championship winning squad. <laughs> that is a joke, but you've you've had some high praise for them. Have you been able to catch any of their other pra- practices, see these guys develop? So I haven't since I got back. They had their last summer practice today. Um, I got to hear about it a little bit. It was kind of the same stuff where Wendell Green's teams keep winning in the scrimmages. So, you know, I bounced back and forth there quite a bit between Wendell Green and Zeb Jasper, who should start. At the end of summer, I'm going to lean Wendell Green, but, I mean, Zeb Jasper brings a lot too, so. I mean, there's just so much experience there with Jasper, right? Yeah, the experience and the defense. I mean, pairing him and KD Johnson as a defensive backcourt is pretty unfair, but I mean, we'll have to wait and see who ends up winning that battle, but they are done with summer practice for now. Um, I believe they start practices up again a week or two after classes start in August. So. Yeah, I think the most important thing for them is to kind of get that chemistry going. You bring in all those different transfers. you got to be able to get those guys playing with each other, and I think that's something that this coaching staff does exceptionally well. Alan Flanagan, any, heard anything about him? He's obviously, I think, Auburn's next guy in terms of uh, a product that has been with the program for a long time, uh, coming to the NBA draft. Anything on him in terms of being that leader? You talk so much about Wendell Green. Last season, Alan Flanagan, kind of the vocal leader for Auburn. Has he has he regressed in his role? Is he re- going back to his, his role as a small forward? Or is he still still one of the leaders on this team, do you think? I don't know if he's necessarily one of the leaders on the court because he's just a pretty quiet guy. I mean, he'll talk a little bit, but one of the things this coaching staff has really stressed from all the practices that I've been at is they want Alan Flanagan, they want Jalen Williams, they want Devin Cambridge, these returning guys who are all pretty quiet. They want them to talk more. They have the experience in this system. Talk more. Teach these new guys a little bit. So they've really been hammering that home. Um, Before I went on vacation, uh, Alan was actually dealing with a little bit of foot tendonitis, but that was nothing major. The last practice I caught before I left on vacation, he was already back and he was back at practice this morning in the scrimmage. So um, he's been shining. I think he might not be a vocal leader for this team, but he'll definitely be one of the statistical leaders and one of the best players on this team. Looking ahead to 2022 mock drafts, he's been pretty consistent in the first round already. So, On the other side of this break, we will talk about Damari Alston, Jay Fair, Caden Story, some prospects that have committed to Auburn. Caden Story obviously announcing at a later date. We're going to continue to break down all that stuff with Christian Clemente of AuburnSports.com. You're listening to On the Line. Stay on the line. More of the show when we come back. Back on On the Line, Lance Daw, Jacob Hillman, Dylan Lark here with you in the studio, joined by Christian Clemente of AuburnSports.com. Said heading into this segment, we would talk a little bit about Auburn's recruits that they've gotten since we've talked to Christian, Damari Alston, Jay Fair, Caden Story. Want to get to a text here real quick, though, from Spectre. 
said all games should be SEC games. No more warm-up games. 12-team playoff for the national <laughs> championship. So he wants an all-conference slate like we had in 2020. Uh, love the take there from Spectre. Thank you so much for texting in. If y'all want to give your thoughts as well, 334-564-1840 is the number to text. 331 331- Three three four three two one thirteen ninety. The number to call. What are your y'all's guy? What are y'all's thoughts on potentially twelve SEC games as the entire schedule? Just an absolute gauntlet. A, a little extreme, but I mean, I go back to Brad's take in the first hour when we talked to him. He said ten teams, which I think is possible. I don't think it'll happen, but I think we're gonna get towards that as the years go on. You know, by twenty thirty, I think that might that could be the norm. Is ten team conference schedules, and then you play. One cupcake and one power five opponent. So, I don't know. Imagine what that would look like with Texas and Oklahoma in the, in, in the SEC. I mean, that would just be an absolute gauntlet. That, I mean, that is three teams you're not playing. Yeah, it's a, that is that is an, an insane, insane gauntlet. Christian, last time we talked, Damari Austin and Jay Fair had not committed. What are your thoughts on those two prospects, and what do they bring to the Tigers in 2022? Yeah, so Jay Fair is a he's a little small for a wide receiver. Initially, you know, we have him on rivals listed as a slot guy. I think he's six foot, maybe five eleven. Auburn actually likes him on the outside. They like his speed. They like his athleticism to go up and get the ball. And he might just be a three star, but Auburn thinks very, very highly of him. As for Damari Alston, I think that's a fantastic pickup for Auburn. He almost kind of fell into the lap of Auburn because some of these bigger schools were recruiting him and ended up looking at other guys. And Auburn was honestly looking at some other guys too. And then Austin became more available than they thought he was. So they jumped on him quickly. I think he's a very, very good running back. Um, He'll make an excellent pairing with Jarquez Hunter in the future. And he's been a great recruiter for Auburn so far too. You've seen him on Twitter. Uh, You talked about Caden's story a little bit. He started the hashtag. I think it was Caden to AU. So pairing him and Holden G um, as those two kind of lead recruiters in this class, recruiting other recruits, I think that's a fantastic pairing. When I ask you about this running back room, potentially in 2022, you lose Sean Shivers. You've got Jarquez Hunter after a year in the system, probably not getting a lot of touches in 2021. How would you rank this running back room? What would your depth chart look like? Would you have Tank Bigsby at the top, obviously? Would you have Damari over Hunter? Would you have Hunter at that number two spot? I would probably put Hunter at that number two. The reviews of him have been very high so far. I think he was a very underrated prospect. He probably should have been a four-star. I don't really know how he ended up as a three-star when you're a record-breaking running back in Mississippi. But I would probably put Hunter at number two just because he does have that year in the system. But Alston is very good, too. I think that'll be in the future something to kind of look out for and something fun to follow to see how those carries end up getting split. Caden Story, four-star prospect. Rivals has, gives him a 5.8 rating, number 29 at his position position in the state, or 20, 29th nationally, 15th at his position in the state. What could he potentially bring to the Auburn, Auburn on the defensive side of the ball? You talk about the depth that Auburn needs in the trenches right now. Could he be somebody that immediately makes an impact next season? I think he could. I don't know if he necessarily will be. He's a little small for a defensive end. I want to say he's something like 230, 240 maybe, but he's very fast. So he is kind of that edge guy that can come off the line pretty quick. Um, That's an Auburn-UCF battle. He is announcing his decision on Sunday. And he was at Big Cat Weekend. uh, Was last Sunday? Yeah, he was at Big Cat Weekend. I have my future cast in for Auburn. I believe he will be coming to Auburn. I think that'll be a big pickup for Auburn in that defensive line. 
Is anybody at Big Cat Weekend stand out to you in particular? Somebody that Auburn really wanted and, and seemed to enjoy the weekend? Anybody in particular stand out? So unfortunately, I wasn't there, but I've been able to keep up with it a little bit. Um, Braden Joyner from Auburn High was there. One thing that really stuck out to me, I mean, this guy has offers from pretty much every school in the country, a couple NFL teams. He's a 2023 center, but he doesn't have an Auburn offer. But he did put Auburn in his top three. He really likes Auburn. Um, So that was a little, not necessarily concerning, but that was a little shocking that Auburn hasn't offered him yet. He said that the coaches just told him they want to see him play in person. So he'll get an offer this fall, I would assume, and Auburn will really pursue him heavily. He does seem interested in Auburn despite not having an offer yet. Yeah, that is interesting considering, you know, how badly Auburn needs help uh, in the trenches right now on the offensive and defensive side of the the football. You look at Auburn's recruiting rankings nationally, still sitting at last in the SEC. 24-7 Sports has them rated as 63rd nationally. Is this a concern for you, or do you think Auburn's going to be able to pick it up over the next couple of months with the addition of the guys that they're also going to get in the transfer portal? Yeah, so we've been, Noah has had that traffic light a little bit. I would still keep them at a yellow for me. Um, They are going to pick up, well, they already got four-star Damari Alston. I think they'll get four-star Caden Story. And then uh, Kobe Albert, a safety prospect, is announcing next Wednesday, August 4th. He's also a four-star, and I also think Auburn will land him. So they should start to bump up in the class a little bit, but the lack of commits that they have so far does have me a little bit concerned for this class still. I don't know if they'll be able to crack the top 20 overall, but like you brought up with the transfer portal, I think they'll hit the portal really hard again this year. So they won't bring as many high school kids in, and the portal kids don't count into that uh, recruiting ranking. So if they crack into the top 20, I think that'll actually be a pretty big win for Auburn based on how many kids I think they'll take. That's what I was going to ask you is do you think this this uh, this program can even crack the top 30, not because of the talent that they're bringing in is bad, but because they're just simply not going to have as many recruits as you would normally have in a class. And, and then like you mentioned, the transfer portal. I think the combination of both of those two things, Auburn will be just fine. And I think when you look at the SEC ranking 14th in the SEC right now last, you also have to look at the overall average player rating as well. And Auburn's not last in that. They're sitting at like 9th or 10th right now in the SEC because you have teams like Vanderbilt that are sitting at 10th in the SEC right now. But they have 17 three-star recruits. They've got 18 commits overall compared to Auburn's seven. So if you have a million recruits, you're obviously, based on the rating system, you're going to be bumped up a little higher. Jacob, is is this recruiting uh, right now concerning to you at all? Or do you think the transfer portal combined with what they're doing right now, at the end of the recruiting cycle, they're going to be just fine? Well, what we've noticed at Big Cat Weekend was the all the four and five stars were pretty much in the 2023 class. So what that tells me is that this coaching staff is focused on that transfer portal after this upcoming season to really carry this 2022 recruiting class. And I don't know if that's going to work out or not, but I trust what the coaching staff believes in. I mean, they got some good transfers this past offseason. So if they can do it again after getting guys on campus and letting them see a game in Jordan-Hare and visit all the facilities, then I I trust them to do that. So uh, we'll see what happens uh, for this upcoming recruiting cycle. Dylan, does the recruiting concern you at all right now? Not really. I'm buying into what Brian Hartson is doing right now with recruiting. I, I like the recruits we brought in for this class. It might not be like top like 12 in the SEC at the end of the year, but I think we're going on the right path. Sipping the Kool-Aid. I respect it. I respect it. Auburn, 
Uh, some basketball news just a couple of days ago learned their home and away designations for their 2022 SEC schedule. Just kind of run down that real quick and get your thoughts on maybe some exciting matchups that we could potentially see both home and away. They get to play Alabama home and on the road. They get to play Florida at home, Georgia, LSU, Ole Miss, South Carolina, A&M, Vanderbilt, all at home. Any of those teams in particular stand out? It's always great to get Kentucky at home. Yeah, um, I think it's a fantastic draw for this young Auburn basketball team. They don't have to go to Kentucky as much as I would have liked to have seen that game. I would have gone to that game. It would have been fun to go to, but that's a good draw for Auburn. Having the home and home or home and away with Florida this year is a good draw because all signs point towards a little bit of a down year for Florida. So I think overall Auburn got pretty lucky with its uh, home and away opponents in the SEC. You get LSU at home, you get Alabama at home, two other really good squads in the SEC. The Justin Powell Bowl, Tennessee, it's going to be <laughs> on the road this season. How disappointing. It's really disappointing. How do you see How do you see that matchup potentially shaking out? Tennessee had two first-rounders in the NBA draft, and they brought in the number one recruiting class in the SEC this last season. Do you see Auburn potentially struggling? Could that be the game that they struggle in the most across this entire SEC slate? So... Looking at Tennessee, they're very talented, but I also just watched this season a Jamal Johnson point guard-led Auburn team beat Tennessee, a Tennessee team that made the NCAA tournament as a five seed. So I think I would be crazy to pick against Auburn in that matchup, but that certainly, I think it will be a very good game, but I would probably pick Auburn to win it just based off recent history in that matchup. That's what I was looking for right there. I was looking for the no, Bruce Pearl's going to come in there and they are going to throw down on Tennessee some other basketball news Auburn set to open the season with uh, with some with some battle for Atlantis play in that tournament and they found out their opening opponent UConn in their first round matchup it's going to happen Wednesday November 24th at 1 30 on ESPN Tigers and Huskies meet for the second game of the tournament following the Michigan State Loyola Chicago duel on the other side of the bracket, you have Syracuse and VCU as well as Arizona State and Baylor. So to set up the bracket for everybody at home, you've got Auburn versus UConn. On the same side of that bracket, Michigan State, Loyola, Chicago. On the other side, Syracuse against VCU and then Arizona State and Baylor. Some top-notch programs in that battle for Atlantis field, but I almost kind of feel that Auburn could potentially take this one. Michigan State's not doing so hot right now. Baylor coming off a national title. They lost just about everybody. Arizona State uh, is not playing up to snuff. Syracuse is going to be Syracuse, but Syracuse has not been able to kind of get over the hump over the last two or three seasons. And then VCU, obviously one of the better mid-majors in the entire country. Could you see Auburn potentially taking this entire bracket or at least getting to the finals? I certainly think they could. I think their toughest matchup, um, before potentially meeting like a Baylor in the final is that first round matchup against UConn. UConn, they lost uh, book night to the draft, but they returned a lot of talent. They were pretty good last year. Um, so I think that'll be a tough matchup for Auburn in round one. I see them getting past a Loyola Chicago or a Michigan State if they were to advance past UConn. And then you're looking at a team like, I don't know, maybe Syracuse, maybe Baylor. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But a title at Battle for Atlantis is certainly on the table for Auburn. The big thing about this tournament is that even if you go in and lose in the second round, you're still playing these high-quality opponents that's going to help the net ranking. So I think the important thing is getting one win. And even if you go in and lay an egg against Michigan State or Loyola, it's still a high-quality opponent you lost to, and you're not you're not playing some team that's rated super low in the net. You want those quadrant one, quadrant two 
wins and if you lose they need to be in that same quadrant instead of losing in a tournament against uh, some bad mid-major you've right. got good mid-majors and then you've got great powered opponents so yeah the, my concern about if, if, if loyal chicago if they somehow managed to beat michigan state is you know they lost their head coach like we talked about on yesterday's show uh but porter moses now at oklahoma but also my thing is if auburn's going to win the national title like I, I expect them to they can get through a field of eight it's going to be it's going to be <laughs> cakewalk compared to what they do in march of 2022 we're going to take a quick break and on the other side of it we will wrap up the show Back on On the Line, Lance Dahl, Jacob Hillman, Dylan Lark, Christian Clemente here with you. A packed studio on this wonderful Friday afternoon. Wanted to wrap up the show talking a little college football, but first, Christian, tell us what y'all got going over on AuburnSports.com. Yeah, so over on our message boards, we've been talking about the SEC expansion a little bit, and then as for the stories, we had some draft stuff. I'll have a story from Shreve Cooper's introductory press conference shortly after I get off the air here and then looking ahead to fall camp starting on Thursday, I believe, August 5th. So we're getting ready for that. And if you all want to go check out all of that, again, it's auburn.rivals.com or you can just Google Auburn Sports and that will come up. Some great content over there. Christian Clemente, Brian Matthews, Brian Stoltz always have fantastic stuff going on over there. To wrap up the show, we talked yesterday about the top five matchups for week one of college football. I want to kind of run down the top five matchups for week two, because after going down that rabbit hole yesterday, just realized how excited I am for the college football season to finally get here. So I just wanted to talk matchups with you guys. I got my five in no particular particular order, but if Jacob, if you want to go ahead, start it off with your number. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, just, it's just not in order. Throw one out there. No, but... I'm going to go outside the box. Holy War. Utah, BYU, 915 yes, on ESPN. I mean, they always, when they play, it's always a blast. And I, I love watching them really duke it out because sometimes they have brawls. They have wacky finishes. It's always a fun game to watch. Absolutely. Dylan? I ranked mine. My number five is the Holy War. That is the coolest rivalry name in college football. I, I don't think BYU is going to win this game. I think Utah might win by 30. BYU's not been competitive in this, in this rivalry in a few years, but the history alone has it at five for me. Yeah, and I actually had the Holy War on my list as well, simply because I'm interested to see what this BYU team looks like without Zach Wilson. And then you heard Noah yesterday talking about you know how hyped up he is about this Utah squad with Charlie Brewer, uh, two teams that have a very, very long history together. Got some interesting storylines uh, circling around that game. Jacob, who's your next team? Yeah, my next, next matchup. Yeah, my next one would probably be, I think, like I said, not in order. I'm going to go ahead and get it out of the way. Oregon, Ohio State. Just two power teams from the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. And it's a game that should have happened last. I think it should have happened last year. But this year, it's going to be a lot of fun. As long as the stadiums are full, it's going to be a fun matchup to watch in front of Buckeye fans. Dope. Oregon, Ohio State is my number one. That is like like Georgia Clemson, that might be a playoff preview in week two. I CJ Stroud too. I, I I can't wait to watch this game. Really exciting stuff, Christian. Who would you have winning that matchup right now? Do you think the Ducks can hold on? Maybe. You know that's tough because it's going to be two new quarterbacks, right? Um, and I guess I would probably lean Ohio State just based off the talent that they always have. You know, Oregon's obviously very talented as well, but 
I guess I would probably have to lean Ohio State. Here's my issue with Ohio State this season. Last year, they had one of the worst secondaries in the entire country. They were just terrible in defending the pass. Could not do it. It could not hold anybody last season. And they had apparently some of the best corners in the country in Sean Wade and a couple different other guys in that defensive backfield. Oregon, not necessarily known, they used to be, but not necessarily known for throwing the ball around the yard, at least this year. I believe they'll be breaking in Anthony Brown, that quarterback transfer from Boston College. If not, we'll see somebody else step in. But they were averaging 246 passing yards per game last season. I can only imagine, considering Ohio State does not return a lot of production, almost no production, on the defensive side of the football, I can imagine that that is going to be a matchup nightmare I feel like for Ohio State and we've seen them struggle against offensively competent teams inside and outside the conference over the last few seasons you look at what uh, Indiana was able to do they were able to take it down to the wire you look at what Purdue was able to do just a couple years ago that was a team that could throw the ball around the yard and they had issues so I think that's an interesting matchup I had it on that on on my list as well Oregon Ohio State again I'm not saying the Ducks are going to win I'm not saying that I'm picking them to win outright I just think that that is a very very good matchup for people to keep their eyes on Jacob who's another who's uh another it's not another team another matchup Tennessee Pitt Pittsburgh travels down to Knoxville and I mean Pitt always brings the chaos they also return 13 starters total and first year head coach Josh Heupel I think it's going to be an early test for him uh I have Pitt Tennessee is like a honorable mention for me but I'm going to use this moment to highlight Texas Arkansas I am high on the Arkansas Razorbacks this year. And if everything goes to fruition, you know, Jacob said that Texas is going to lose to Louisiana. I I might pick Arkansas to beat Texas. Texas might be (laughs) 0-2. Interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah, I've got I had Pittsburgh and Tennessee actually as an honorable mention as well. You look at ESPN's FPI, 51.9% for Tennessee, 48.1% for Pitt in terms of their matchup predictor. Really, really tight game according to ESPN. I think that matchup's gonna be really good. I'm interested to see what Josh Heupel does in year one with that offense. And then I also had Texas, Arkansas on my list. Texas has a 70% chance to win this game. Arkansas a 30% chance to win this game. Talk about all the different all the different guys that they have coming back all the all those starters all the all that production for Arkansas could be really interesting to see if KJ Jefferson can put it together and and be that guy do you think there's any shot for the Razorbacks in this week two matchup Christian Uh, I would pick the Razorbacks actually in that matchup I'm pretty high on Arkansas this year so yeah I would certainly pick them so I would certainly give them a chance I love that take another question to you then if you're high on Arkansas do you have them finishing higher than Auburn in the SEC West Ooh, I haven't thought about the standings, but I do have them beating Auburn really during the regular season. So I haven't. I guess with that, I would probably put Arkansas above Auburn in the standings. But some hot takes here. I absolutely <laughs> love it. We're running out of time. Let's go ahead and breeze through some other matchups. Iowa at Iowa State That's was another name. one for me. Interesting to see what Matt Campbell does on his way to a potential Big Twelve title game. Um, it, man, I would love to see, like we talked yesterday, a Kansas State and Iowa State win the Big 12 after all this Oklahoma SEC talk, but this is a pivotal game early in the schedule. Well, Iowa State's the big power now in the Big 12, and them playing Iowa could be a Big 10 rivalry preview, so who knows? Dylan? Uh, well, I have Iowa-Iowa State, too, but I also want to quickly get through uh, Washington-Michigan. I think it's also a pretty fun matchup in Week 2. You get a, a, like a Pac, Pac-12 runner-up, the, uh, the game runner-up every year be a fun little matchup on week two 
Absolutely. A couple other games before we get out of here real quick. A&M at Colorado. Colorado had one of the best rushing attacks in the entire country last season. A&M, one of the best in the country at stopping the run. Interesting there. Missouri at Kentucky. And then that Washington-Michigan matchup. Awesome as well. Christian, thank you so much for stopping by. Tell everybody again where they can get all your great content. Yes, you can find all my stuff over at AuburnSports.com, along with on Twitter at CClemente underscore. Absolutely. Guys, that's going to do it for the show. Thank you so much for hanging out with me in the studio. We'll be back on Monday. Noah will be back on Wednesday, so I will be hosting for the next two shows. We'll see you then.